This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This episode of The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by Scrivener. Get 20% off the desktop software by using the code SECRET at literatureandlatte.com. This is episode 49, and today for the first time on the show, I have two guests, Rob Cohen and Christine Roth, who together launched Rothko Press. Back in the 90s, they created the LA-based literary magazine and coffeehouse staple Caffeine, which published the likes of Charles Bukowski, Allen Ginsberg, Dave Allen, and Pam Ward. And now you might wonder why they would want to start a publishing company now, but with their experience additionally in optioning and producing film and television, they see a gap where the ebook market and all of the publishing is creating so many books that it's very difficult to spot all of the books that have such great potential to be seen on TV and as films. So they created Rothko Press to find books that have maybe been lost because they were new books that aren't getting the attention they deserve, self-published books, out-of-print books, where they see the story has potential to go on television or into film. So I think you'll enjoy listening to this episode. Again, this feels like a fun little Hollywood connection to have these two on. But a good story is a good story. And Rob and Christine really know how to champion a good story. So I know you're really going to enjoy listening to them. Hey, Rob and Christine, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi there. Hey, great. Uh, Thank you for having us. Of course. And you are my first... It's the first time I've had two guests with one of me. So this is a fun little experiment. It's great to have you on because you guys have Rothko Press, but we've had small presses on before, but what you guys are doing that's different that I'm really excited to involve everyone in is the idea of involving the idea of television from the beginning in the process of cultivating a book. So can you tell us a little bit about how you both came to this point where you're involving both TV and books and the whole thing is an idea that's combined together? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because it really goes back to the, the first books we ever wrote. And uh, we always wrote books to be TV shows. That was our goal. Like the first book uh, was a book I wrote with a guy named uh, David Wallach called Etiquette for Outlaws. And we wanted that to be a TV series. And lo and behold, it got optioned for a TV series. So we thought this is really cool. Let's come up with some more stuff. So we came up with a couple other books and they were all sort of written like a TV show. And the funny thing is they all got optioned. And then because we wrote this way, we ended up getting hired into doing development for new TV shows because lo and behold, we wrote how they were thinking. So it was really the same. We realized pretty early on that it was the same process. There's so much I want to know about this. I've got like nine questions running. So you figured out the way TV was thinking, but you decided to start in books, which is really unusual. Every time I hear about people wanting to write for TV, they're writing treatments or they're writing, you know, sample episodes, or they're trying to write something that they think is directly involved in TV. So what made you decide you wanted to go the book route in order to get towards the television? One reason why books are awesome, especially in the States. Books are awesome because a book is a piece of intellectual property. No one can say, when you write that book, no one can say, oh, yeah, but it was my idea or somebody else did it. It is your book. You wrote it, begin, and your name is on it. Yeah, and I'd say, I mean, like, looking at, looking at your, your, your bookshelf, there's not a script on there. There's not <laughs> no. On there. no. There's no shelf life. 
So, you know, really we started seeing pretty early on that, you know, as much as everybody's like, hey, I wanted to write a screenplay, read my screenplay. Nobody wants to read your screenplay. And <laughs> if you're a young writer, and, and this is just really the, the cruel truth. So even if you luck out and your screenplay is great, you may not, not end up even writing the final one. They'll hire somebody who really knows what they're doing. How do you get into stuff? And how do you really craft and control your story and the different possibilities and what things look like? And we found, like, if you write it down as a book, it's all there. So whether or not the final script is how you want it is a different thing. You have your original piece of intellectual property, how you've imagined it. And now it's about adapting and really the take that you want to make on that book. Whereas a script is one person's view of a story, how it's told, who the characters are. But there isn't much world around them to play with versus you have War and Peace. There's your source material. Come up with a movie. You can write a billion movies from that. Right. If it's one script on War and Peace, all you got is the is the information in what, like 120 pages? Is that it? Not a lot. Mm-hmm. And what happens when people start giving their notes? Then all of a sudden they're, they're encumbered, which means that if I help you with your script, well, you know, it's we're now collaborating on a script. Permanent attachment. Yes. But a book, you own all of your intellectual property. And now you're talking about the process of adaptation, which is different. By the way, we're we're speaking of these in really broad terms. You know, for 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 legal purposes, we'll just say uh, permanent attachment, encumbrances, and all kind of that kind of stuff is a a whole big ball of wax that you really don't want to get into on a podcast. But uh, yeah, you can look up that stuff and and find out basically that. Really, the the cleanest and easiest way to make sure an intellectual a piece of intellectual property is yours is to have it in print. And the other thing is, how many old books are coming out as movies? Yeah, you know, exactly. screenplays they just don't have that same sort of shelf life. You'll never go to a bookstore and discover a screenplay based on the title. You'll right, go to right. you go to a bookstore and say, "Oh, that looks interesting. That book may be twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred, two, three hundred years old." And now you can still adapt the same content because you wrote a complete thought and you spent proper amount of time with it. So for us, it's a combination of that, putting together that complete thought, that complete story, uh, as well as having it wrapped in a convenient way, which is a book and you put it on a shelf and people can share it. So it's something that really starts the process. Let me say, conversely, we've worked with screenwriters who have like great ideas and we had a funny conversation with one of them about how to, you know, how to turn his screenplay into a book, because he wrote this uh, long story, but wrote an amazing uh, trilogy or three three uh, three season show for whatever reason didn't get made, but it's a great story. We think at some point somebody's going to make it, and totally capable guy wants to turn it into a book. How do you do it? And I'm like, well, the difference is instead of letting the set guy figure out what the spaceship looks like. You write what the spaceship looks like, what, you know, it's all that stupid stuff that you don't really care about when you're writing a screenplay because there are other people who are doing it. Well, it's like now you get to decide what's your spaceship look like. Spend some time, figure it out, own it rather than say, I don't know, somebody else is going to come up with it. That's a screenplay. It's much, much harder. Like you can be a novice writer and have your book, a, a, a first book, only book, turn into a big budget movie. You'd have to get ridiculously lucky for your first screenplay to turn into anything beyond recyclables. So you're basically writing a novelization 
of your own script in a way in this situation. It's true. And, uh, but not all, it's funny. Uh, n- not everyone is cut out for this. Not all novelists can be screenwriters. Conversely, not all screenwriters can be novelists. Yeah. It really depends on uh, how much of a collaborator you need. In in our case, we look for things that are finished, complete thoughts, or as finished as we can get them, and we help people along. I would say that there's a, it it it, uh, it can be a a different experience depending on what editor or what press you go to. What do you think is the main difference between? someone who'd be happier as a screenwriter and somebody who's happier as a novelist? Oh God, it really just depends on you. I mean, just it's what you're, I mean, I would say do both, right? Learn how to do both. And if you really want to commit, go figure out what you have that you like the best and turn that into a novel. Again, you're not necessarily, adaptation's a little different. Again, just want to make sure that your book contains enough pieces of intellectual property that you own and that if we just, if, there's enough information in there where I can see it or another producer can see it as a movie, as a series or what have you. You put enough characters. You still have to do a good story. It's not just the format, right? A bad script and a bad book are kind of similar. Although one, again, it could be sold and, you know, you put a good cover on it. Like you don't have a good cover <laughs> on a screenplay. I can't judge your screenplay, unfortunately, by the cover. I can judge it by your name. If I've never heard of you before, you better have a good agent or I'm not reading it. Because right. it's just there's only so many hours in the day, and like anything else, you know, I, I'd say the biggest one of the biggest lessons that we can tell either screenwriter or or novelist or or any kind of writer is, you know, writing's an individual achievement, but television media it's a team sport, and people are looking for collaborators and people they want to play with rather than we are going to turn your book into the perfect version of what you want it to be. Everybody on a project has put their job on the line. They're putting real money on the line and this is their career. They want to, you know, it's, it's a team, it's a team effort rather than an individual. And that's why you see so much differences between TV and the, uh, the, the actual media and, and the book or the screenplay in the book. We love actually really going and digging into works like, I mean, Lord of the Rings is a great example. Uh, a great, obviously great source material that has some clunks in it for sure. And, really seeing how they adapted it and really thought about it and try to honor all the stuff that they couldn't put in or put speeches under different people's names so they could get it in there. We think that's really a, a, a great example of that in the Harry Potter books about making good choices and having enough information that you can turn something into something else. Mm-hmm. One thing that is really great in when you're, when you're doing a book versus uh, a script is world building. And, and that's one thing that Rob was just touching on. Uh, we have a, uh, an author who has uh, done two fantastic world-building books for us that we are now endeavoring to get adapted to a screenplay. Uh, and the, bil- and, and the, the book itself is fantastic. And uh, he's given us so much material that, to work with that it can go... Like everybody, everybody who, who, who reads the book feels like they, they can play, they, they can, they can add to it. And I think that's kind of a, um, I think that that's a good sign when yeah. you're, when you're looking at a book. It's an author named Richard Lee Byers and really fascinating guy. And he's actually done a lot of, um, role-playing game 
uh, and series work, where he turns these pre-existing universes and he builds upon them and does the novel, uh, another episode based on different pre-existing material. And when when, uh, when we saw his superhero treatment for things, he it's a brand new hero, brand new world, brand new brand new sort of story. We loved it, and we thought we didn't know if it was going to be. You know, we've been talking to people about turning it into a TV series. Uh, a, a role-playing game, a video game. Uh, oh. There was enough raw material in it that, we're, that we wanted the book, absolutely. A- anything that has sort of that raw material that feels like it, it has the engine for ongoing, the engine and ongoing story potential. Mm-hmm. You know, right now, on, uh, continuing stories has been really the way to go. When you're looking for raw material, you're thinking about putting something out there. It seems like there is this interesting split between stuff that's physically published and gets turned into shows or movies. And then also something like the Martian that was self-published and then ended up becoming a movie as well. Do you think, where do you think people are looking right now in terms of if people are looking to put books out, where would they want to put them out in order to get them in front of the right people for TV? It's kind of a weird, impossible task. You know, a lot of it has to do with finding a manager, finding an agent. It's, it's a vetting system, right? It's finding and connecting with somebody, whether it's somebody like us who's a publisher or a producer or an agent who will help get your book in front of other people. Or frankly, if you're somebody who's got great social media skills and you can get the word out yourself. You know, people, having people unlikely discover your book is a really challenging thing and most people can't do it. We, uh, and that's why honestly, we've published brand new, we've brand new works nobody's seen before. Uh, works that have been out of print for years. Uh, we we don't really care as long as it's got a, it's a good story that we feel that we can, uh, you know. Look, we can't guarantee we're going to sell or set up anything, but if it's got this, if it feels like it works within our kind of group of friends and colleagues, and we're and and it's something that we're passionate about, we're willing to take it on. We don't want everything. We don't want to give people false hope that they're going to get into TV or film because it's hard, but. Given the opportunity, you know, we, we have lots of opportunity, and if we know about your material, then hey, we can do that. We, we've just been doing it like crazy. We 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 just you know uh, came off of a there's a new uh, show on National Geographic Channel we produced called Origins, which is this, it's the episodic story of humanity from fire, medicine, communications, and we met some extraordinary people on it. Many of them are on screen, a bunch of them aren't. All of them are experts in their field. They have a bunch of books all are interesting or they know other people who are interesting. You sort of network to find cool properties that you can do stuff. But I'll tell you, most of the experts we, we talk to and, you know, we would same with other publishers. They don't know how to get to TV either. Like we, we've been <laughs> talking to like we, we've talked to major publishing houses and you talk to, you know, even those that have media components. But the way organizations are structured because they're not vertical. If I work for a publishing house that's gotten a media outlay, I'm not I can't do a sweetheart deal with one of my 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 books, you know, say, hey, I'll give you a deal on this in order to have you turn it into a movie like, no, you actually have an author who you need to represent, too. Similarly, once they exhaust that one bullet of the production company attached to their press, like HarperCollins and Shine uh, or Shine Endemol are part of the same overall news news core group they would have to stumble upon it and then figure out how to navigate their different companies. What we're starting so to get- So Shine and HarperCollins don't talk to each other about this on a regular basis. No. no. 
No, it's too many people, too many things, and they're not producers over there. They're editors. You know, they're really just trying to sell books, whereas we're looking at books saying, you know, if I had to research a show about what you're doing in your topic, boy, this is I've got a credible author. I've got a great title. I've got good concept and storytelling. And all of my research has been done and it's divided into 13 to 20 uh, wonderful chapters that look like episodes. All of a sudden, I'm not going in there with an idea and a Wikipedia page. I've got real stuff and real people to, to really start like you're just not starting with a blank page or a blank opportunity. You're like, here's an idea based upon a pre-existing book that that's, that has a track record with an author. You are all of a sudden starting to talk about what a show is. So let's, let's break this down a little bit for people who may be listening. Cause they're all thinking about like, I've got an idea. I'm going to write an outline. I'm going to write this book, but let's break down like how let's take origins as an example so you've got your first episode is about fire and you've got a wide variety of people talking on there from people that everybody will have heard of like bill bryson to more academic people that they haven't heard so what was your thought process around okay how are we going to get these people lined up and how are we going to put them together to organize them to the best you know benefit on the show well okay. like anything the first thought is what what the hell is the episode about? What's fire? What does it mean? Let's start really brainstorming out like anything else, 50 different ways where you could tell this story mm -hmm. in 44 minutes. Yeah. You know, with all of your different breaks, you start charting that. What are good stories? You know, and they range from mythology to, you know, to very modern stuff. Uh, and then from there, we start searching out really academic academics or people have written uh, best-selling books and really talk them through it and get their sort of ideas of what they think it's about. And I, I, it's a combination of consensus as well as practical stuff, which is locations that we have available, time of the year, uh, weather, you know, actors that are available, because in this case, we shot all of this in uh, South, South Africa. Africa. So you had limited availability of other potential uh, uh, cast. And then from there, kind of Start putting together your idea of what a cool arc story that would credibly tell you the story of fire in a way you've never heard it before. And then really match in your experts who already who who have strong opinions on it. And that said, we there are about 25 experts that uh, contributed to that particular show who we spoke to in one way or another, they're either in the rest of the series, or uh, we, for whatever reason, could not actually include their story, um, but they're fabulous authors. They all have books. These are all people that, that and, and it could be uh, like uh, David Carrasco, who's a fabulous guy who, who uh, forget the name of his yeah, book right now. Yeah, David but, um, is, is a scholar out of Harvard. Just fascinating guy and, and one of the things that we wanted to do was the story of the new fire ceremony which is an uh, aztec rite mm -hmm. and basically what would happen is every certain amount of years the, the kingdom would extinguish all their all their fire and they would show you where fire comes from and it was a religious ceremony where they literally carve out the heart uh, of a special uh, appointed sacrifice yeah person to sacrifice and in that heart is where the they would put a fire and they'd have people lined up to get fire from the heart for well for where that heart was so that so that the kingdom would know that fire comes from god the gods 
through these appointed people, and here is the fire as proof, and we are all going to share in that origin of fire. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and, and unfortunately, the unfortunately, it didn't fit in with the narrative. And and we didn't really have enough. We, we, we didn't have enough Aztecs in, in South Africa to actually make something like that work. But it's, it's a great story. Mm-hmm. So if someone is an expert on something, let's say, and they've written a book, how how do they find you? so to speak, like if they're looking to get more exposure and they're looking to get more contact and maybe start working with media. There are a couple of ways. Um, one is a speaker's bureau. Uh, there's also like a TV guestberts type uh, places that uh, some of them are you have to pay or and some of them you don't have to. It, building a following, a social media, again, soup is really crucial unless you are an academic with a captive audience or some or, or some piece of research that kind of uh, rises to the top. I'm, I'm simple. Have a great idea first and have mm-hmm. a big personality or a good personality and want to be collaborative. Like if your book's terrible or if you're, if you're one of a billion people writing that same how-to how or psychology book, what differentiates you rather than you're best at that? If there's, you know, uh, if there's a billion self-help gurus out there, I mean, you're, you're never going to make it unless you have a unique take on it that gets you to the top of the list. So first thing is really, you know, know, know yourself a little bit. Like if there's no way based upon what you see on TV that you really that what your book does really kind of fits in, come up with another book or take a new take at it. You know, a lot of people just they don't write good stuff. I mean, if the book's not good, I can't really do anything with you. Or if you don't have a unique take or it's not really a complete story. There's not really much to do. If you're an expert and you have a good story, then, then there's stuff to do. There's also sort of a separate area, which is uh, one of uh, Brian Fagan, who's also on the show, just kept reminding us is history is about people, not things. So I think a lot of times people are lazy in storytelling and they just tell you this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And there's less intellectual property in that. You know, if you're doing a biography and you're just telling a chronology of somebody rather than slices of life that's evocative uh, and emotionally connecting, it's two different things, you know, even though they may be uh, about the same topic. So if you're out looking for new talent or new ideas or new property, what's sort of the ideal scenario, the person who maybe shows up and feels like, oh, this was a gift for us to get this? God, there's so many different scenarios that it's really hard to say. I mean, part of it would be like, well, we well, we just had this one with a woman who wrote a book uh, called Lola mm-hmm. that really timely, really well written. She'd never really done this stuff before. And we think we may, may be able to do something with that, which is which is exciting. On the other hand, I'd say just in general, I think a lot of people think of the book is the goal, like the goal in the end, rather than you and your career are the continuing freight train through life and you're going to keep putting out new product. So it's really about you and sort of the different products. So like the perfect person we find is they're on their journey, whatever that is, as a writer, as an archaeologist, as a, a journalist. And here are the books that they keep that they're they're putting out more stuff rather than I've got all my eggs in this one script basket or book basket. And if only this pie in the sky would happen, it's hard. The more stuff, the better. And the more people are really working on their career, the better. As as an example, I would give uh, a 
uh, actually somebody that Rob found, a guy who we both love to death named Shane McKenzie. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, again, also very different. Shane McKenzie uh, is a, a horror fiction writer and just writes mm. it, it's, it's a subgenre called Bizarro Horror. So it's okay, really tell me what Bizarro Horror is, because I love this name. It's oh. amazing. It's basically the cult section of your video, you know, of your video store, except this is the book version. And love. there's a. If you watch Portlandia, half the people who write this stuff have been in Portlandia. A lot of this comes out of Portland. There's uh, a guy named was it uh, Thornton Mellick III? Uh, the third. We'll, we'll we'll get you the different presses so you can see. And okay, great. Uh, they're just they're extreme and they're comedic. Oh, there's a guy named Jeff Burke who's a big part of this. And Jeff wrote this thing called Shatner Quest. Yes. Which, which was a parallel universe of multiple Shatners. That's and, awesome. And then he did Shatner Quake. And they're just, they're absurd. And they're, they're wonderful, right? They're brilliant is what they are. Um, but and, Shane himself actually does not live in Portland. He lives in Austin, Texas. But he's Facebook friends with uh, a friend of ours. A guy named John Skip, who's an o old school uh, horror writer. He was part of the um, splatterpunk. Yeah, sp the whole splatterpunk scene, if, if you know that scene. Very, I mean incredibly well liked and respected and just is one of those great connectors in the world and you will not hear a nary a, a, a bad thing about uh john skip and i was asking him really because there's no way i can do any bizarro stuff as tv or film it's just too hard to get made but um i'm like who should i be keeping an eye on and he told me about this guy shane mckenzie and just through happenstance shane wrote another book called Mutt, which was a non-horror-based uh, book, which is really about his own personal life experience and then gone, gone terribly wrong. So Shane's half Scottish, half Korean, and uh, he, he looks Mexican. And especially because he lives in Austin, everybody assumes he's Mexican. So he used that as sort of the premise of a book about, you know, a 17-year-old kid who's lost his father coming to a new town and no, no friends, you know, uh, no social life. But there's this girl he's been looking at at the bus stop who's just amazing. Nice. And she's Latino. So it, it just, but that's, that's the highlight. And, and it really goes horribly wrong oh, no. from there. You know, but, but, but it's always about a girl. And we really liked it. It's a novella. And we're, oh, like, yeah. we're like, this we can work with you on. This is something that the book really felt like the perfect vehicle for an indie movie guy or girl who's like, I need something that's manageable. That's that can be done on a budget. That's a love story with lots of sort of fight scenes and violence, but ultimately has a heart to it and it could be shot anywhere. And it's funny. It's like, you, you know, the, the movie, the breakfast club. Yes, of course. That, like John Hughes used that as his first movie to direct because he wanted it to be in a confined area. So it didn't, he wasn't traveling all over the place. And, and this book had a little bit of that too where it's like, you're not going all over the place, it's manageable, so so we jumped on that. So that that's one that we have with him, but the, what we wanted to do, because we, we just thought he's such a great talent, is he's in Austin, he, even though they're doing South by Southwest there right now, his access to LA people for lawyers and managers and agents was practically nothing. And really, to find somebody who could actually connect you with somebody who could really meaningfully help your career. So because really had so many things on his side, we, we end up introducing him to our, uh, our attorney, our theatrical attorney, who loved him, thought his stuff was great as well. He introduced him to a manager, and now he's really moving up in the ranks because he was able to find a connector to get him to the next step. 
Yeah, it also helped that Shane was also part of, being a part of scenes is really important. Shane is part of several. And one of them is uh, indie, indie film in uh, Austin. And so on top of writing uh, this one, this one aberration for him, this one non-horror thing, he also uh, wrote a, a bizarro horror script. And what happened is that, well, we actually flew him out here. Uh, and he ended up meeting a manager. Uh, he ended up, um, uh, pro- not through us, but this is kind of starting to happen for him. He ended up uh, uh, getting a, a deal with Warner Digital. So he is screenwriting in Austin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at least for, for Warner Digital on uh, another the project that they have him working on. Um, and uh, he's, uh, he's on our radar, too, the, for the, non-horror. The terrible version of the story is a writer that I, I met a, a while ago who uh, put out, I, I guess, a, a short, uh, a novella through a, another company. And apparently that company got a call from uh, like a Hollywood producer wanting to know about optioning it. And the person who answered the phone says, we don't do that, and basically hung up. Oh, no! It's, it's mm-hmm. for a lot of people, once they even get that call, they don't know what to do next, and they start acting crazy. They get a friend who's a lawyer who doesn't know anything about TV or film, who earnestly is trying to protect their rights, not knowing what rights they really need to protect and what thing they're really slowing down or scaring people off in the process. So we, we with at least the people that we, we take on, we're, you know, our, our company's called Co-Conspiracy. We really want to work with people and put build teams of people to, to, to really, whether it goes into TV, film, or, or video game, or really just stays in books. We're, we're fine with that. You know, we're, we want to nurture good talent uh, a, a, another interesting piece of talent we've been working with is a guy named Frank Loria, and Frank is uh, is actually comes out of, out of the beep, uh, out of the Beat Generation. We met him really Beep and uh, Pulp Fiction, right. and we met him through a publisher of Black Mask Magazine, who published all the original Pulp stuff, and I, I just just conversationally saying who of that generation hasn't been rediscovered, and he introduced me to Frank, and lo and behold, he's in San Francisco. Perfect. Yeah, and he's now had really a renaissance. We're just about to put out a fourth book, fourth, third book through us. Third book. And he's got a whole series called uh, Dr. Orient, which is a really fun, really pulpy series of sci-fi. Uh, and it was called Occult Detective Fiction back in the day. And that was sort of pre-Dan Brown. Now we would say, if you like Dan Brown, you'd like this. Interesting. So we, we've, we're really excited about having access to a lot of his catalog and trying to get him more well-known. I want to pause for just a moment to talk about our beloved sponsor, Scrivener. It has been such a delight to have a sponsor that is a product that I believe in so much and that I've had so many listeners and so everyone who's come on the show even before Scrivener was sponsoring us talking about how much they love this software. And the reason they love it and the reason I love it is because it is intuitively designed for writing. Um, it isn't something that you have to jerry-rig or something you have to work around or something that you have to deal with a bunch of annoying factors. The features in Scrivener are features that you actually need and use. And in talking to someone like Rob and Christine, you even don't have to decide whether you're a screenwriter or you're writing a book. 
Um, you could do a treatment for a book you're working on and do a book all in the same software without spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on, you know, big name software that isn't going to do what you want it to do. So if you'd like to check it out, you can go to literatureandlatte.com and get 20% off the desktop software with the code SECRET. Okay, let's get back to Rob and Christine. Yeah, it's interesting to think of writing as a catalog, which it really is. Like once you've written a number of books, there is that whole kind of genre that's available. So I'm one question I have, you said before, like it's hard to get bizarre horror made. And as someone who's sort of very peripherally just living in LA aware of horror, um, I've always heard it's the cheapest one to get made. So mm -hmm. what's tricky about that? Well, but, but like horror is, is one of the easier things to get made. You're absolutely right. But when you start getting to really niche stuff, you got to find people who really are interested in the weird stuff. And what we found is everybody wants to meet you. They all think it's awesome. They can't possibly do it. Do you have anything we can do together? And right. sort of having that conversation with them. Everybody wants to see the extreme crazy stuff. No doubt. The question is, do they know enough people with, you know, in their organization who can get behind it and are willing to put the money on it? Because really most of the horror stuff you see, they're all very simple premises, easy to execute. And the bizarro stuff goes to really the absurdist length. So you're really dealing with not only a horror film, but the cult version of that. Right. So it's so niche that they're not sure there's enough people who would go see it. Yeah. Right. Also, as far as books being optioned, the landscapes change a little bit, too. You kind of have to be in it. When you when you write a book now, uh, you have to be in it for the extreme long haul. Uh, and uh, even if you get down the road of somebody saying, I want to option your book, it's a little bit before you get cash. Right. So it has. It's you're not going to be a billionaire overnight. Television actually takes quite a long time. You exactly. can take between one to three years to get a, a show on the air. Yeah. And then what's the, I mean, there is, I've heard of people who are journalists also who are kind of writing sort of Esquire style journalism who write really kind of jazzy stories that could be a good show and then just repeatedly get it optioned and nothing ever gets made, but that's their business model. So how do you handle that kind of scenario where it's like, this book would be great. And then it's sort of taken off the market and then preparing an author for like, well, that may be all we get. Well, I mean, it's really thinking of it like that. It's really look at every, every step you get, you get paid. You know, I mean, we've had a uh, etiquette for outlaws option four or five times. Five. It's it, <laughs> we've made one pilot and it's never been made, but it, it's, it's, it's made, it's made its money. There's a whole literary not, uh, memoir basically all about uh, the movie up close and personal okay so you, right and really he uh, the author wrote it so he would be able to stay in uh, stay in the writer's guild to get his medical benefits <laughs> and really the story was how long that thing was in turnaround and how long he'd be able to keep his medical like there are all, all, all kinds of different reasons to write uh, going back to what you said earlier about catalog as soon as you've written one book you have a catalog People are too obsessed over what's new and what's next. And with publishers right now, really, and I, I don't know if you've heard this from any of your other writers, uh, a lot of publishers are basically taking a six-week approach. That basically, whatever's going to sell in six weeks is it, and then you can have your rights back. Just because after that, they, they got nothing they're going to help you with. But you should really start thinking about your, your books as long-term property, because 
that, that most 99.99% of people will never read anything you have. So everything is new to them. So it's really coming up with interesting stories that will have a long shelf life that if you are able to get in the right hands, here are the different things you are across. Mm-hmm. We actually have an example of that. Let's uh, hear Jennifer it. Weiser. Oh, Je- uh, yeah, Jennifer Weiser. She's one, uh, she's one of our authors. She's uh, written a ton of young adult books that did very well. And then she did a whole bunch of stuff in the 90s that we just thought were terrific. She's recently gotten married, changed her name to Weiser. It was Jen O'Connell. And uh, honestly, one of them was just the title was so terrible. We retitled it, and it's an, it's actually it's a, the book was great. To this. <laughs> she writes great books, and just this one title, and she was telling me they just couldn't get it. And uh, it, it was um, oh god, what was the original? I can't even remember what it was. Our title is the Cake Whisperer. That's great. Yeah, and it's it's all about a woman who who runs her own bakery in Cambridge, and she has this knack that when people come in and couples order their wedding cake, she can tell whether or not they're going to succeed or fail. And for fun, she put in a little fail safe where she offers a free service that for like, or not a free, like a $50 service where next year for your anniversary, don't keep the, don't keep the cake topper. She'll bring you a piece of cake for your wedding anniversary. And that's how she can check to see if, if you're still married. And we thought that's just a wonderful premise for either TV show or a movie. So we're out shopping something like that. And that was really a book that had been in our catalog languishing because, you know, it had a funky title and you didn't really know what to do with it. It was just sitting in a drawer, more or less. But it's a great book. Great book. And you see this also is like you never know when the trend is going to hit sort of wide with what you're writing, because you see somebody like I guess the example I always use is Jojo Moyes, who had written a ton of books and then comes up with Me Before You that gets made into a movie and and they have that crazy font on her cover. And now all of her books are coming out of the woodwork. And I started to think, how is she writing all these books? And then I was looking at the original pub date and it's like, oh no, these are all her old books now put out in the the graphic design style of the one that hit big. Look, I'm a huge uh, David Goodis and Jim Thompson fan. I didn't find out about them through their original books. I found out about them when Black Lizard uh, came out with uh, their reissues back in the 90s. I'm like, what is this? And all of a sudden, I found a whole new group of authors that I like. So that's why shelf life is sort of a funky thing. It's like if it's out in print, it still has opportunity. And if it's a good book that's out of print and, and it, 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 there's a market for it, we're interested. Yeah, sometimes it's not just ready yet. Like the world may not be ready yet for your story and it could come back around for sure. Oh, yeah. Especially like true. life rights and memoirs and sort of pe- like sci-fi. How many how many sci-fi films are based on old, old product? Or even say something like, oh, this novel that we have about an intersex teen and who's getting bullied. Lola. That's Lola. Yeah, by Victoria Kalatyan, and she uh, she she's like, I'm so glad to hear from you because we yeah. have, of course, we have a little bit of interest in it now. Yeah, write good stories is the first. Come up with really cool, interesting ideas that are have a delicious premise, good characters, and that you can pay off. You know, and don't be obsessed. Oh, I mean, for our point, uh, you don't. We're not looking for like the literary masterpiece. We're looking for really good stories that are wonderfully written that it, you, you don't have to be writing the next warm piece. No, probably. And you probably don't want to, cause that one is so long. It's going to take you two years just to read the thing. My, my mom read it in like two weeks 
she she skipped the war. <laughs> <laughs> I actually loved it because there was a new translation maybe six or seven years ago, and I loved it. But, you know, I'm not always going to be reading War and Peace. So how do people um, start the process? Like, say somebody listens to this and it's like, oh, my God, I need to talk to them. How are you interacting with new potential talent? I mean, it usually starts with an email. Go to a rothcopress.com, track down our email, and we'll we'll respond, ho- hopefully. Um, generally speaking... <laughs> And, and keep keep the faith. We respond eventually. Yeah. I mean, look, we're always looking for new cool stuff. That doesn't mean, but that's in our head, right? What that, how that question is answered is we only know how it, it's answered based upon what kind of material we're seeing and what have you, you know? Uh, but yeah, we like, we, we like cool ideas or different takes. I'd say uh, we, we've recently been publishing uh, a lot of music stuff because we love music. Uh, we, we just published a, a wonderful book called uh, T- Together Through Life. Uh, it's a personal journey through the music of Bob Dylan with a guy named Chris Morris, who's a 30-year veteran music writer at L- of L.A. And prior to this, I, I look, we're music nerds. We used to work at music labels, blah, blah, blah. I turned down every music uh, memoir that came our way because they all had some version of seeing Ed Sullivan and their life, life's change. And I just really could care less. There was nothing new. There was no new take on it. And, you know, especially when you talk about Bob Dylan, what kind of new take could you possibly have on Bob Dylan? It was amazing. And really what he did, if you're a fan of like high fidelity, it's basically it's Chris's autobiography, autobiography through the music of Bob Dylan. So every time a new Bob Dylan record came out, he bought it. And this tells the story of what was going on in his life. Two marriages, two kids, two divorces and a bunch of living. And the story that sold it was he got a second Bob Dylan record from his mom as an early Christmas present because she thought he needed it because Kennedy had been shot. Wow. So really, really you think, you know, he's listening to this record after an assassination of, you know, of Kennedy. And how, how emotionally did he relate to it? And what were the messages? It's not quite Bob Dylan in me, but it, it's not far away from that. And for us, even though he really didn't see it, we saw this could be a wonderful indie film which is really about somebody living with, with Dylan as their sort of moral touchstone going through life for good or, or bad. And you've got the soundtrack all laid out right there. When he reads, it's sort of like old school Jim Ladd, Seventh Day, where he'll do this wonderful chapter. It's a Los Angeles thing, by the way. <laughs> and uh, then we'll, he'll just th- he'll throw it to a track off the record. Nice. And it's just wonderful storytelling because then you hear the song and you're remembering who, you know, where you were when you heard it and what the meaning was in your life. And you start realizing that as a cultural touchstone, we've all heard Dylan and we all had emotional reactions to him. And he's really helped us through good and bad times in our life, whether, you know, you're, 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 you're getting a divorce, drunk on your couch, and, and uh, a new Bob Dylan record comes out and you're hoping that he's done with Jesus at this point because you have real problems that you need him to answer. And, you know, will the new record help you? And everybody has music that has gotten them through some sort of life situation. So it seems like that makes it, even if you're Dylan or not, that experience of records being your touch point is, I, I think it's universal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have another book that we're working on that hopefully will be out this year. Yes. Uh, it's uh, an author named Owen Husney who approached us 
maybe god maybe about a year ago at this point not quite a year ago no yeah it was about a year about february uh, uh, last year he, he's the man who discovered prince the the musician yeah and about like three four months before prince died we signed him to a book deal because what he wanted to do was he wanted to tell his own literary autobiography and he calls the book famous people who've met me he grew uh he grew up in minnesota and he's just got a great story if you've seen the the documentary Supermensch, there, there's a, a a lot a lot in common, and each chapter is really, God, it's not quite a slice of life, but it's really a, a evocative story from his past that happens to feature people that you've heard of, but it's clearly Owen's story, and it always starts usually with some big, big boast or event that that he lies his way into and has to somehow figure out a way to solve it. And it's just it's it's funny. It's relatable. You know, his first job in music is really folding baloney for like in, like in Spinal Tap. But he's folding baloney for the Rolling Stones playing in Minnesota in Minnesota. Awesome. And he, he, he that was catering back then. He was making the little sandwiches for the band. And he thought because he did that, that he should he should bring the who to Minnesota. And he was the guy to do it. But the best he was able to get was Howdy Doody. Nice. And it's just this, it's just a wonderful story about, you know, uh, it's 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 a coming of age in the music business. But then you're also flipping that and then finding an older guy who, who, who's now been out of the music business. And all of a sudden there's a 17 year old. There's, there's a, a three track demo tape that's being played to you about by this about a 17 year old kid named Prince Rogers Nelson that you don't believe is real because no way a 17 year old did this tape get him here kind right. of conversation and it's just it's wonderful so that'll be out probably later this year mm -hmm. so famous people who've met me uh but owen had a new take you you read it and you're like yeah that's not a regular book about it, it, it when he pitches it as a literary autobiography we we didn't blink we're like that's exactly what we're looking for and we wouldn't be surprised if this ends up getting turned into a, a documentary or, or uh, even series TV. Awesome. Well, I hope everybody listening has gotten some new ideas and bringing your own story into the process seems like part of the thing that it's not just about Dylan. It's about the impact Dylan had on your life or about people who've met famous people or just taking more time to think about how your story is different than someone else's. Yeah. I mean, look, with any writing, tell us a good yarn. It's a good story. If we can't forget it, then it's a great story. If we can forget it, we've already forgotten it. True. Like it's not, not every, but not every book gets to be something. Not every writer gets to be something, but that shouldn't dissuade you. If you, you know, if, if they, it's like Ed Wood, if you didn't like the last one, wait till you see the next one, keep working at it. And really just try to try to come up with a good story. It's one that you like. Yeah, and keep trying because then you're going to have an amazing back catalog when you get to the one that, that everybody wants to read. I mean, there's a reason why you see most first novels published posthumously because it's people learning how to write a novel. That's okay. Your first novel is going to be terrible. That's fine. We need, you know, we're, we're even, it, 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 they're never perfect because you're just learning the process. That shouldn't stop you from trying the next one. It'll be much easier. You know how to do it now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. This was amazing. And I know it's going to be a fresh take for many people on how to think about publishing and what publishing can look like and, and why you would want to write a book. 
Well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah. We really appreciate it.